Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Amy Lochran. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the story A Good Nurse, Amy was a trauma nurse, and unbeknownst to her, her colleague and good friend Charles Cullen was revealed to be a notorious serial killing nurse. So we discuss a host of topics from her early life, her journey into medicine, the power of healing, the betrayal of trust not only from Charles Cullen but also her employer, how she navigated shame, guilt and grief after that incident, her journey into becoming a metaphysical healer, her experience making the film about her life and so much more. Now before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Amy Lochran. Enjoy. So Amy, I want to start by saying Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I learned about your story, as I'm sure a lot of people did, through the Netflix film that they made. But then when I, you know, dove into it myself, I realized, well, that obviously that one chapter is very powerful. But your journey prior to that, what you've done and the book that you've written since that, that there's a huge amount that we're going to discuss. And then sadly, the timing of this podcast in England, we just found out that we had a serial killer who was a nurse who was actually murdering babies. So um, the timing seems to be pertinent to bring this conversation, the trust that people have in the medical profession to the forefront again. So welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? <laughs> I am in Florida. So am I. Where are you? Land, land of the fascist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am in Deland most of the time, but I I travel so much. It seems like I'm only there about six months out of the year, and I leave for Australia in a couple of days. I'll be there for a month, I believe, um, and I also have a nice little RV. And so I am going to, the month of December, I have decided that I am going to live at the beach. Beautiful. Well, I mean, there are amazing human beings in the United States. I would say that some of the people that, I don't think even chosen is the right word, have weaseled their way into leadership positions, maybe um, not the people that we want speaking for an entire state or country. But that being said, I mean, I adore living in Florida. What is it that drew you here? 
The only reason that I'm here is because both of my daughters ended up here. So my oldest daughter went to college in London. She went to the, uh, she attended the Regents American College of London and really couldn't, couldn't handle the weather anymore. <laughs> I can so relate. She ended up transferring to Florida met her husband and then my other daughter followed her down only because there's beaches so they both ended up down here and i'm just happy that they're both together and they only live about 20 minutes from each other so i moved down so that i could be with both of them beautiful yeah i've always told people i i love the uk i mean i spent 26 years there before i moved apart from some time in japan and I love the culture. I'm so proud of where I was born. But the unending gloom, I'm kind of yeah. like a solar panel. You know, when it's sunny at home, you know, in England, whether it's sunny here, I have a lot of energy. When we have the cloudy days, I just don't have as much. So moving to a state where the sun shines a lot more and you're very close to some of the best beaches in the world. I mean, it's it's hard yeah. to argue with that. So where are you in Florida? I live in Ocala, so I'm right. If you look at your map, you stick a pin right in the middle. That's where I am. So each beach is about an hour and a half from me. But the good thing is when the hurricanes come, we're buffered too. So <laughs> I used to live uh, in the Ocala forest on the 100-mile equestrian trail. When I first moved down here, I moved my three horses, well, my two horses down here and acquired another one. And uh, lived there so that I could ride in the forest. However, there's something called banana spiders here. Yes, there and are. And it, it was like riding through a Harry Potter scene. Yeah, or an Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> yes, yes. All right, well then I want to get to the beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I was born in a very small town in upstate New York, which was thriving then. Um, there was a lot of industry there called Norwich, New York. And I just had my 40th class reunion. I was the homecoming queen. Um, and then I moved to Utica, where I went to nursing school. And then from there, I just worked in ERs, ICUs, local hospitals until I, oh, I guess you want to hear about my actual childhood. Yeah, I mean, we, we'll get to further on, but absolutely. I love to hear, you know, kind of what made you, for example, even want to go to nursing. So what, what were your parents doing profession-wise? What were you exposed to from their careers? I had a pretty challenging upbringing. Uh, my parents were very young when they married. My mother was only 16 and my father was 19 when they married. My mother had three children by the time she was 21. So they definitely struggled and we struggled along with them. Um, I did fairly well in school, although I was, I, I can't say that I was rebellious I was just a little bit wild. Um, I discovered boys very early on. And I, yeah, I, I struggled a little bit. Um, I have a brother and a sister who I'm not super close with. Um, and that's okay. They're 
wonderful people and they are who they are. We're just not very close. And I don't know if that's just because we went through so much trauma as children. Um, I became a nurse because I had decided to become a psychiatrist or psychologist. And I ran out of college money after my first year in college. And I started working at a nursing home. And I witnessed one of the residents being abused. I turned in that particular nurse and my supervisor told us that, or told me that it was a personality conflict. And there was something in me that was so angry. And maybe because I was not protected as a child, knowing that I, I felt powerless in protecting these very vulnerable people, I decided to go to nursing school. And that's what I did. So my reasoning behind going to nursing school was because I wanted to protect the vulnerable. So when you were in the high school age, were you already thinking about psychology, psychiatry at that point? Or was there something else on your mind apart from boys? <laughs> I, right. I definitely wanted to become a psychologist. I was actually very interested in the metaphysical, which back in that day, it was called parapsychology. And I really wanted to be a parapsychologist, but yeah, now we could probably do that because they have all of the fun Ghostbusters thing that uh, is is so popular on television. There wasn't really any place for me to go with that. My grandmother was a huge lover of all things metaphysical, UFOs, the pyramids. She gave me my first book on Edgar Casey, which I devoured in high school. And yeah, so that's really what I wanted to do. And I guess the universe had another idea. So you couldn't go down that route specifically. Um, what was it that drove you to psychology and or psychiatry? What 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 made you stay on that somewhat road, even though you kind of weren't able to hang on to the, the metaphysical side specifically? I had some pretty challenging mental health crises in high school. And um, I was I was abused as a child and really didn't know how to deal with that. I remember I used my own money and went to the local mental health clinic so that I could start therapy because I knew I was I was in trouble and no one had the verbiage in my family to even be able to talk about those things and it was you just you just deny everything that happens in the family you just move on and I couldn't do that so I had a wonderful therapist who, when I was 14, I believe she charged me a dollar an hour. Wow. And yeah, she was, she was, she was absolutely instrumental in me at least being able to live a pretty much normal, pretty mentally healthy life, even though I have struggled mental with my mental health. She she gave me a platform to be able to do something different than what my family had done. 
This is such an important conversation. This is why I like early life, you know, parts of these interviews. It's just simply my profession, fire and, and EMS. If I went to a mental health counselor that maybe wasn't um, culturally competent, maybe wasn't looking at the holistic human being, they would go, oh, well, James, you had that child killed in an accident and and that'd be it and then you work on that you do emdr for that and then i'd be like well i'm not getting any better though it's not working well when i was four years old i was trapped in a house fire and almost killed my sister got us out that's kind of important and there's you know my parents divorce and all these other things so whether it's nursing or the military or first responders this is such an important part of the conversation and if someone met you two years ago, they'd be like, well, that's just why you're struggling because you had that thing with the, the nurse when that's just a small part of your overall life story. I believe that that's the reason why I was able to be so close with him is because I had my own darkness. So you're an incredible 14-year-old girl that has the the foresight to get herself to a mental health counselor. What were the the mental health elements that you were struggling with? And what were some of the tools that she brought to you at that time? I was probably a borderline in the making. I was headed down that road. Um, I was um, I was cutting. I, I was um, I was doing a lot of self injurious behaviors. Um, I was binge drinking at 14 and I was extremely suicidal by the time I was 16. And I don't believe it was a, I want to die. I think it was a, I don't know how to live with these demons in my head. And so acting out or using alcohol really seemed to work for me, or I was the exact opposite and I would go to church all the time. So it was either I was doing something to sort of um, mask my guilt and shame for being abused, um, or I was acting out. And one of the ways that I would act out also is I would be an overachiever. You know, one semester I would have straight A's and the next semester I couldn't even go to school. So it would, and no one really noticed. And if they did notice, no one was even prepared to give me help. With the noticing element, I had a, uh... One of my guests, Passy Solberg, is an educator in Finland, which when we look at the kind of global success of educational styles, Finland is usually number one. And that was a huge thing. And I've heard so many people on the show that did slip through the cracks when they were younger and ended up homeless and, you know, being abused at home. But their lens is on the holistic child. So rather than worrying about standardized testing grades, they are looking at the well-being and they're investing more in some of the poorer areas, for example. So it's it's sad that I've heard this over and over again, that a, a young man or woman, a young child, on paper, oh, they're doing fine. They've they've got these grades, but they're not doing fine. And we need to make, you know, that's where the shift needs to be to to catch these children that may be at home, you know, aren't doing well and this is the thing with even the COVID thing there was so much under reporting because their saviors really were the teachers that were paying attention yeah yeah so you get on the psychology road 
you get derailed because of finances. What was that like for you? You're on this path, you know, you're, you're obviously wanting to self-heal, I'm assuming, be part of the solution for others. Was that jarring, you know, on that educational road? I don't think so. I, I, when I started in nursing school, I really thought that I was going to become a psychiatric nurse, work weekends, and then either go to medical school, get my PhD, whatever I was going to do. I saw that as a step in the direction of my academia. And when nursing school really planted these seeds of who I was meant to be. It was when I was working with the worst patients of all, the burn victims, um, the, the amputations, the traumas, the horrible ICU patients with 40 lines coming out of them. I wanted the worst. And I was never meant to do psych. I was really meant to be a trauma nurse. And every single time that I was put in a position where I could choose between a very complicated medical patient or a psych patient, I always felt more at home with the severe, severely ill patient. And in fact, when I was on the psych unit as a nursing student, I started having pretty severe panic attacks. And it was it was interesting because I would be reading their charts. And these were schizophrenics. They had been schizophrenic for most of their lives. And as I'm reading their charts, some of them had easier lives than I had. And I all of a sudden became extremely paranoid that I was going to become schizophrenic. I was, you know, a 20 year old girl. And that's really when they start to notice it was right in that time during college. And I had been smoking weed and I had been doing some drugs in school. So I had been doing some, some uh, psychotropics and I started to become terrified of psych patients, terrified that somehow what they had and the way that I was talking to them, that it would wake something up in me. And so I, I, didn't want to go to clinicals with the psych patients. I didn't want to be around the schizophrenics. And it was, it was surprising to me. It was just so surprising. There's a kind of dichotomy to the emergency medicine side where on the one hand, you know, you're part of the solution, you're saving lives. But the other hand, obviously, is the trauma that you're taking vicariously from the things that have happened, especially the reactions of the loved ones of that person, especially if they don't survive. What did you find within yourself when you switched to the, the trauma nursing? Was there an element of healing or was it a kind of a, a, um, a double-edged sword for you? I got to be a hero when I saved someone. 
And I also was able to act out trauma. I could experience other people's trauma by not experiencing my own. I could talk about something really awful that happened when I was taking care of them and be very dramatic about, you know, these deaths and, and as a young person and being around all of that, it was, it was just so gratifying for me because I had such self-esteem issues. It helped me to feel more and more important in life. And I was really proud of myself and it was a way for me to not only feel proud of myself, but I didn't need someone else to tell me that they were proud of me. I could do something, feel that experience right away. And I didn't need that from anyone else. So it was, it was a good fit for me. Now, I don't remember as a paramedic ever getting any kind of training in this other than obviously the common sense. If something blatantly is happening that's wrong in front of you, then, you know, you have to report it. Like you said, the abuse in the nursing home. What about these worst case scenarios that we're going to get into? Were there any case studies or anything in the world of nursing? Because, I mean, when, when I'm dealing with someone on the side of the road, the opportunity for abuse is a lot smaller than someone who's working a ward, you know, in an acute care. So what about that element from educational and then and then the education you got from your employers, the hospitals on that particular topic? Um, I think that what I was learning more than anything was how to dissociate from any of that dissociate from needing to um, describe what the culture of nursing was, that I could be a part of something and be an insider to it all. And you really like soldiers, as I'm sure as a paramedic, you experience this. You know that there's things that co-workers did that you just didn't talk about and everyone knew it wasn't right we all knew it wasn't right and whether it was the way that a nurse talked to a patient or the way that nurses would use their power over that patient to um, not give them proper care because they pissed them off and I think of those things and how over and over again, I was becoming desensitized to it. And I didn't want to be desensitized to it. I just saw how big it was and being that voice and speaking up made you a target. And I didn't really want to be a target. And especially very early on in my career, I did not want to be. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it does. Absolutely. Actually, it brings a whole different thought to my mind. So the compassion fatigue that I see in my profession, you can, of course, point initially for the this very small amount that they should never be in the job in the first place. You know, we're talking about yes. people abusing patients. But then yeah. the majority, to be fair 
the job is set up for failure when it looks when you look at the hours and the work yes. rate and the, the you know, immense amount of trauma that we're exposed to um and so yes. if you don't have the wellness initiatives the rest and recovery the the proper work week for example that a firefighter paramedic should have then it's only a matter of time some people have again through the the good fortune of their upbringing and environment have the fortitude to regain their compassion throughout their career a lot of people it's more of a roller coaster ride of good days and bad days when you look at nursing or the environment that you were working in earlier in your career what were the factors because i'm sure those young you know men and women that were in nursing school all you know, most of them had good hearts when they first you know, showed up for their first day. So what, what are the factors that were creating that behavior in your nursing um, men and women that you worked alongside? I saw most of the nurses I worked with got into it because they wanted to make a difference, because they wanted to care for people. As time went on, it became a career. And that doesn't mean that the older nurse, and I mean, I've been doing this for 35 years. So from back in the 80s, it, was, it wasn't paid as well as it is now. And so it, it really was truly a service industry rather than it being seen as a profession. And you were part of labor rather than being a professional. And when it switched and it became more respected as a true profession rather than uh, this female-dominated servitude type of role, um, it also became capitalistic. And when we switched over from caring into how much money can I make and how much am I going to be paid and um, the degrees, even though that's wonderful and beautiful and I'm so proud of the nurses that do those things, the farther and farther and farther away if you get away from patient care you become. And then those patients become a dollar sign and those patients become a diagnosis rather than a human. That's what I have seen. That does not mean that we don't have beautiful people in our profession. I just know that it definitely has changed. Everyone has nostalgia. Everyone can look back and say, oh, back in the day, it was so different. But I, ha I have definitely had that arc of understanding why I got into it and why other people get into it and that it is definitely changed now with the Gen Xers. It's interesting with the fire service because I think, again, most people, you know, step up onto the diamond on the, you know, the, the first day of the fire academy or EMS because they do want to serve. But if you look at a lot of us as we get deeper in our career, the conversation becomes about pensions and benefits yeah. and drop. And, and it's like, well, that's that shouldn't be the thing that you talk about most of the time. It should be service. Now you should be paid the way you should be paid. And I yes. advocate yeah. very hard for the, the working same. environment to be the same. But, you know, it's, it's the other myth that all oh, firefighters have this wonderful schedule. They actually don't. But if we keep telling this myth, 
then people are going to keep believing it and coming in again for the wrong reasons. I know firefighters that are actually real estate agents that do firefighting on the side. That's completely backwards and you shouldn't be in this profession if this is an afterthought for you. And I think that parallels what you're talking about in nursing. On the other hand, uh, if they are not using this as the way to support themselves, their passion may be even deeper than people who are using it just to support themselves and get a paycheck, perhaps. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's that too, if if they're all in. Um, yeah. So one, I want to go one more area because you, you, your career spans over three decades. Before we get to Charles Cullen, one of the things that I've seen strain the call loads, and therefore the first responders, the you know the the um, ER nurses and doctors, and everyone else that makes that that organization work, is the increasing ill health of our nation and the abuse of nine one one and ERs. Yeah, what what so have you seen over thirty plus years through a nurse's eyes? I remember when I first started and I was shocked at someone using EMS, using the ambulance to come to the ER for a paper cut, for um, a headache, for a sunburn, for a stubbed toe for I want to go downtown and party and I don't have a ride. So I'm going to pretend that I have a stomach ache and come to the ER and then sign out all the way to people not using EMS because they don't want to abuse it. And they're having a heart attack in my, in, in, in my lobby and we can't even tell. So it's it's a very bizarre profession because you also become suspicious of literally every single patient that comes in that they may be faking their symptoms. And that abuse has changed nurses. I don't know what it was like before me when we started with actually having trauma codes back in the late 80s. It, I I didn't see those kind of abuses. I did not. It was completely different. A lot of drunks, a lot of um, a lot of people that a lot of a lot of dumps from uh, from nursing homes where they want to get rid of a particular type of patient, usually a dementia patient, and uh, we definitely saw those but the abuse has become so severe. The other thing that has become different are the level of overdoses. Um, when I started, there, were, there weren't heroin overdoses. We, my last ER that I worked in, we could have 10 a night. And that, that piece of it has definitely flooded the ERs now. That's another person I want to get on the show is Beth Macy, who wrote the book that they made the show Dope Sick on. Because there's another yeah. one called Painkiller that I've just watched on yeah. Netflix, which is good. But I think Dope Sick tells a story a lot better without the kind of Hollywood you know, effects that they kind of dove into in the other one. But this is a, a national crisis. And this is what's so yeah. frustrating, as is obesity, as is cancer. You know, we have this this pandemic for two years, whatever people's view it was a spotlight on health, supposedly, and the well-being of the nation. 
And then we come out and it's like, all right, we're good now. Well, we're not good. We have an opioid crisis. We have an obesity crisis. And this is the thing is the medical professionals and the first responders of the world are screaming this out, but it's not the buzzword of the week. So it doesn't get any airtime anymore. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Well, when I first started, it was the AIDS epidemic. And I remember we went from not even wearing gloves when we were suturing people because the nuns thought that if we wore gloves, then people would think that we assumed they were dirty to being in complete hazmat suits because someone had a cold. And it was, yeah, it, it was definitely a different time. And the more that we learned about AIDS and HIV, of course, it loosened up. However, wow, it was bad back in the 80s and early 90s. Everyone was terrified of AIDS. I remember being, I must have been eight and I got a book out from the library. And I think I was always destined to be in, in medicine in some capacity because I was fascinated by it. And I grew up, my dad was a vet, a veterinary surgeon. So I'm sure that's a big part oh. of it. But I remember reading this book on AIDS, being terrified that like, I'm going to get AIDS and I'm an eight-year-old yes. child. So yes. I I think that I was more afraid of schizophrenia. <laughs> yeah, which which is, you know, like you said, a little bit more um understandable than an eight-year-old child yes. getting AIDS so I think that was yes, you know, yes. more founded yes. but when I did my very first clinical as an EMT not a paramedic um I think that was the tail end probably of most of the the surge of our AIDS patients because obviously a lot of them passed away but I do remember in Orlando um in the hospital having about I think it was three or four people with you know just days from death what was that whole period like for you because i mean sadly it's kind of gone and forgotten now and it's you know a huge disservice to a lot of the populations that were affected and also it really inspired this intense homophobia and brought it to the forefront uh evangelicals saying that it was a way to punish uh the gay population and that was, I think, the most heartbreaking is it's always been blamed on that population. Um, now we're kind of going through it again in, in a very strange way. Not the AIDS piece of it, but they're coming up with new reasons to be upset about that ra the rainbow community. Um, and yes, I think it did remind me quite a bit of the AIDS epidemic when COVID hit. The challenge was most people and young people did not see themselves if they were heteronormal. Uh, then back in the day, they did not see themselves at risk. And I think we've also seen that with a certain population believing that COVID is not a risk if you're not on the front lines. So it it really mirrors that wave of misunderstanding. It's interesting watching you know, the, the pendulum swinging so far the other way at the moment. And then again, like you said, that's created a pushback because it's, you can't help but feel like it was made such an issue to be so pro now that it almost invited a pushback from a certain group because i don't know if you feel the same way most people i know who are usually normal people are 
happily, you know, that's who you love is who you love. And yet we've got these extremist voices. And so I think yeah. a, a, the shopkeeper was just killed yesterday and shot because she had a, a pride flag outside her yeah. shop. You know, that's not how people normally think. That's a sociopath yeah. with a gun. Yeah. But I feel like now, again, just like with masks and vaccines and, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter and all these things, it's rather than the common sense in the middle, which is this is an opportunistic virus. It is real. Whether you choose to vaccinate is up to you. But the health of the individual is predominantly the most important conversation with this as well. It's like, well, if you're not putting, you know, pride flags on all your social media posts, then you're a homophobe or all the way the other way, you know. So this is what's so maddening to me is there is a common I think the majority of the people sit squarely in the middle where it's like, okay, yeah, well, that's fine. If they love who they love, that's beautiful. So I, this is what I feel like it's been projected that it's a lot worse. And there are a lot more um, people with with hatred in their heart, real prejudice, than there actually are. And I think it's a projection of our society. I'm not in disagreement. Yeah. All right. Well, then, speaking of sociopaths, let's get to uh, Charles Cullen. <laughs> speaking <laughs> <Good segue>. of, <laughs> I, I know one. <laughs> so you, you mentioned about working in Utica, New York originally. So walk me through that journey and how it took to your, you know, your paths crossing. So I was in Utica. I was also in, uh, I spent most of my career in Oneonta, New York, uh, which everyone calls Stonyonta, New York, because that's where all of the stoners go to college. And we had a huge uh, college uh, population there. So I decided I was going to become a travel nurse because I wanted to only work weekends. And during that, it was very early on in that huge wave of travel nurses being paid a lot of money. And um, I saw an ad for a $10,000 sign-on bonus, a $10,000 completion bonus, and $55 an hour with... Um, I believe you could do 72 hours a week. So it was crazy money during that time. And so that was right around 2000, 2001. And so I got a weekend contract and I would drop the girls off. I was co-parenting at the time. So I would drop the girls off at school for their weekend with their dads. I would then on Friday drive down to New Jersey and I would stay in the hospital for the weekend and then drive back home on Monday. And then I would pick them up from school after I had had a little bit of a nap. So they thought that I was a stay-at-home mom. And it really worked out beautifully for me until I realized how sick I was. I was extremely ill. I um, I ended up being diagnosed with an electrical cardiomyopathy, and it started to affect my ejection fraction, and my ejection fraction plummeted from normal. I, I believe it was around 65, 70, which I had done um, stress tests and echoes because I knew that I was having some dysrhythmias. 
And it plummeted from that down to about 40. And I was exhausted and I was not functioning well. However, I needed to work to be able to have insurance. And because I was a travel nurse, I could only miss a certain amount of shifts to make sure that that contract wasn't deleted because they could say, you're done, out. And if it was not something uh, that I could, that was within my contract, I would actually have to pay back any of the bonuses I had received. So it was terrifying to me if I missed more than one shift and I needed a pacemaker. I needed, uh, I needed at that time, uh, they had said, if I don't have some type of remapping at that point of my electrical system, that I was going to end up on the transplant list, which I did. So it was pretty scary. It was a pretty scary time. It's, I mean, to to do all that traveling and, and have that cardiac issue at the same time. And I think, uh, sadly, it underlines the issues we have with healthcare in this country. I come from a country where the national health is not perfect at the moment, you know, but the philosophy when staffed well, when, when funded, is that you just go get the help. You just go, you know, get the procedures and you get your pacemaker or, God forbid, you get on a transplant list, but you don't have to worry about the financial side. You don't have to drive all that time because I need my insurance, you know, and, and there's people, yeah. you see these elderly people in, in grocery stores. Some of them I'm sure just want to be around people and they enjoy their job, but how many are there simply because that's the only way they can maintain their insurance? I know it's just heart wrenching. And when, when I was real, it, it was, it was so challenging because I was too sick to work. And yet I had to work sick. I uh, I actually ended up taking a Friday off, taking a Friday uh, or a, a full weekend. I switched around a full weekend so that I could get my pacemaker, be off for the weekend, and then go back to work so that I had more time. Um, so I ended up getting a pacemaker and was back at work what, two days later crazy now when you were, were nursing were you doing nights or days usually nights because it was a huge stipend so with the amount of money that i was i think at one point i was making in upwards of 70 dollars an hour back in 2000 because this is the thing we were oblivious to this conversation of as you sleep medicine was almost not even around back when you first started but now in this journey i've been through and learning the huge detriments of of shift work especially you know sleep deprivation working night shifts uh, i mean it's related to everything and it'd be yeah. interesting forensically if you went back through your life if that was a big compounding element to why you ended up with arrhythmia in the first place i i've often wondered that and there's no way that they're ever going to be able to say why i ended up with sick sinus syndrome and electrical cardiomyopathy i did have a virus at one point they believed that that was part of it i ended up with an endocarditis um but i had also had a uh, a severe car accident a pretty serious car accident 
and I fractured my sternum. And so that could have been part of it. There, There's really no way of knowing. It's sort of a guess. Everybody sort of guesses why I ended up with that. Was it was it hereditary? Was it because I did drugs back when I was in college? Who knows? We don't really know. I usually say it's because I caught a virus just because that's the easiest way to explain it. But we really, truly don't know. Yeah. And it probably the answer is a little bit of everything. It's usually the case. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I do think that that's what it is, is that there was, uh, you know, it was an irritation within my electrical system. It got turned on and we couldn't turn it back off. So your travel nursing, obviously, you know, behind the scenes, you're dealing with this health issue. Talk to me about when you first met Charles Cullen. Well, I was, I remember watching him. Uh, he was he was going through orientation with a particular nurse that I know was not going to give him the best orientation. And I could see the way that he was trying really hard to just appease her. She was, she was not the easiest nurse to deal with. So I, I felt like I just wanted to talk to him and make him feel comfortable and welcome. And that's what I did. I, I, the first time that I talked to him, I made a little joke and he, he used his humor right back and it was very self-deprecating and um, we really became close very quickly. And one of the reasons I know that I could have gotten close to him was because there was no boy-girl boy stuff going on. Um, I think he knew his limitations, <laughs> but he was <laughs> he was a very, very interesting person. He was really fun to talk to. He was really fun to work with. He was, and he really took care of me and he could tell when I was struggling and he would help me when I was struggling. So, um, yeah, he was, he was a great nurse, I thought. So as you become friends, I mean, with this 2023 lens now, knowing what we're about to talk about happened, did he ever kind of give any glimmers as to his early life and what may have contributed to this kind of homicidal behavior that ended up developing? He did talk a little bit about his upbringing because I was very open with him and vocal, vocal about my own upbringing. And he would occasionally throw something in there about his own trauma, his trauma about being, um, having death in his family very early on about his mother, uh, that a, a hospital had lost his mother. And we didn't really go that deeply into it um, at work because we had other things to do. And normally we would only talk about what was happening in the moment and what was happening with his very tumultuous girlfriendy relationship. So I, I'm trying to remember now because I know we were going to talk a little while ago. So it's been more time since I've seen the the show. But 
I know that there was um, discussion of maybe some wrongdoings in a previous place that he worked. Was that before you started noticing it, the things at your own hospital or was that after? I didn't notice anything at my hospital. There were other things that were going on. I did not think that they had anything to do with Charlie. Um, there were there were multiple incidents I remember of extremely low blood sugars. And every morning there would be seven, eight, nine, ten phone calls of low blood sugars. And so we started to assume there was something wrong with the lab. Either there was a lab tech that wasn't doing it correctly. No one thought that every single person had low blood sugar. And of course, looking back, it, it seemed like perhaps there would have been something sinister. It's not where your mind goes. You don't go from, okay, there's a lot of low blood sugars to, Oh shit, I wonder if somebody's murdering people. Like that's just so like it, it didn't even come into my mind. And we were coding a lot of people, but I worked in an ICU. So to me, it was, oh geez, you know, I just have those nights where I'm the person. Everybody knows that, you know, we're we're the people that there's always going to be a code happening. We there was there was no one that was thinking that there was anything sinister going on. And I did not know that there was anything sinister going on, embarrassingly enough. So when did the information that there'd been some unusual happenings in his other hospital start getting into the story? Not until he was fired. And no one knew. No one had any idea. I did not know. And when um, when I started, it was when I started working with the detectives that I found that out. I did not know how many, though. I did not know how awful it was until Charles Graber's book came out. So let's kind of walk through now you have this kind of, you know, third person perspective. What was actually happening? What was he doing unbeknownst to so many people around? Because again, you know, like you said, you work with a bunch of professionals. We have the most immense trust. I mean, as a paramedic, you know, they're lying there unconscious, hoping that I'm going to do the right procedure or push the right med. So everyone has this trust from the outside looking in. He's a great nurse and became a good friend. What was actually happening behind the scenes? Yeah, it's interesting because as you were saying that, I'm I'm always shocked at how I start to get emotional about this because I do still carry some guilt. And um, my understanding of it was he would take his cocktail, whatever it was for the night. It could be phenylephrine, nitroprusside, uh, vecuronium, uh, insulin, potassium, digoxin, whatever it was. And he would inject the IV bags that were laying out on the counter. They were labeled from the pharmacy. I would pick them up. Everyone would. We would pick them up, check the label. This is for my patient. This is the medicated uh, IV bag. And we would go and hang it. So we were delivering his poisons and 
that's that's a piece of it um and then he was mainlining other patients uh usually with digoxin i don't know if he was mainlining insulin i believe that was just in the drips uh that we had i i don't really know and i'm glad that i don't know the things that i do know are heartbreaking just heartbreaking um there were so many times where I would walk into a situation where he was injecting someone. There was one particular patient where he was injecting them with lidocaine because we had a patient that went into BTAC. And I was not aware that she was allergic to lidocaine. I was the code team leader that night. And I was, I, I remember being interested of why this brilliant nurse would be using lidocaine. It wasn't wrong. Lidocaine was at that time we were using only amiodarone. Lidocaine was out of fashion, even though that was what we used to use for VTAC. It wasn't a wrong decision. It was the knowing afterward that he was injecting someone who he was very well aware that she was allergic to lidocaine and severely allergic, and she did die. I mean, the, like we'll get to obviously the mental health journey, but the the realization that you miss something is something I've talked about. I've had a, a few guests recently who were talking about human trafficking. And again, the, the, the reality of human trafficking, not the, the movie version. And when I think back to calls where, especially involving sex workers, you know, yes, there was a patient at that time and I did my best to take care of her, but we missed the fact that that needed to be reported because those young ladies were probably being trafficked. Well, that's all well and good. I didn't have the education to even make that understanding back then but the guilt now of looking back and going so many calls i missed because i didn't have that information it's something that's going to stay with you whether it's you know a mild version which mine is or the fact that you literally were standing there witnessing the murder with no one you know no realization because you didn't have the tools to to acknowledge it Yes. And no matter how deep the work that I do in dealing with the PTSD of that um, and the guilt of it, I have very deep rooted guilt <laughs> from my childhood. And so it is it's definitely a trigger. And I'm always surprised when it pops up. And on the other hand, I'm glad that it's still emotional for me. I don't want it to not be emotional. I can deal with these emotions. I think that they're very, very normal. And it was when I wasn't feeling these motion, uh, emotions back being a trauma nurse when I was extremely burnt out where I wasn't feeling, that was when it was scarier. This is, I am so grateful that I can feel this. I'm so grateful. Yeah, I mean, it's the normal human reaction to an atrocity. Yes, exactly, exactly. Now, when he was spiking the bags, was that still deliberately that medication to that patient or was there almost a macabre Russian roulette going on? 
I understand from his, um, just from his testimony during his confession, it was Russian roulette. So again, and then here we are talking now, and there's a British nurse just being sentenced to life without parole for doing this to to infants, and it was insulin. It was, I think, they even said fed them milk. So I don't know if that means that it was cow's milk that was, you know, fatal to that particular child. I don't even understand fully what happened, but you know, the the irony, like I said, that we're having this conversation. That had we done it when we originally planned, we never got to discuss this. But this is the level of trust that our profession has. And again, now in 2023, hopefully myself and people listening, when we go back to work in whatever capacity it is, we'll have a slightly different lens and a little bit more education than, you know, obviously yourself and that woman's uh, colleagues at the time as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of her colleagues for not backing down. I am really, I'm just so proud of them because it is not easy. It's not easy to go up against the hospital when you know that they just want to shove it down. And I, I really, I'm, I'm so grateful for them. I'm so proud of them. Well, let's talk about that for a second because you, you, you know, it's, it's blatantly obvious that there is a financial element to healthcare in the US. And within that structure, there are some incredible human beings that are just trying to do the right thing in the world of medicine. But then there's obviously the, you know, the other side, the profit side. When things started, you know, coming out, whether it was in front of your eyes, or whether it was other people realizing it, what was the resistance from the hospital in this surfacing initially? Um, so the initial response was to just not talk about it. And when I had someone discussing anything with me, it was more about coaching um, of what to, not necessarily what to say. They coached me to be afraid of some of the detectives. They wanted me to fear the possible ramifications for me and my family. And I didn't really believe any of that. Once I met the detectives and once I started working with them, of course, there was that place in me because I've watched television. Like, well, maybe they're just setting me up. Maybe I, you know, I certainly went through that paranoid thought process of what if, what if they're just trying to pin this on me? And I just remember thinking, if that's what is supposed to happen in my life, that's, that's pretty messed up. Like I, I trust that I would not do that to myself. And I trust that where this is going, I'm being given an opportunity. And no matter how much fear I have, no matter how much fear someone, because I certainly didn't share that I was working with the detectives, no matter how much fear the hospital tried to instill in me, I was more afraid of the hospital than I was of the detectives. So yeah, this is just an interesting, important point that 
I'm sure there's so many good people that, like you said, would have stepped up and would be like, it doesn't matter about the money. It doesn't, you know, we need to make this right. But sadly, there are people in the world who, whether they're chiefs of fire departments or heads of tobacco companies, you know, OxyContin, you name it, there are certain individuals that if they find themselves in that place, the well-being of others is not at their nucleus. And then these these kind of perspectives and stories need to be hear, heard, especially when the longer that a nurse, for example, remains on a ward, the more people that die. I just remember finding out that the hospital knew he was murdering people. They knew. It wasn't just they're, they're suspicious. They had a name. They understood that it was Charles Cullen, and they did not pull him off of the ward. They did not fire him. They didn't have to fire him. They could have pulled him off the ward and pulled him off the floor while an investigation went on. And they left him there with us, with family members that were, it's just, it it just goes beyond understanding. And it doesn't matter if I had been an administrator I would not have been there to protect the hospital. And I, I, I don't have that in me. Uh, I have it in me to only protect those people that I am meant to protect. I am not there to protect a corporation. And there's some real moral mental health crisis going on, moral crisis, ethical crisis going on in administrative corporations, bureaucracies with healthcare. And it was 20 years ago. It hasn't really changed. I've made that that observation. There was a guest on Joe Rogan's podcast named uh, Sad Guru. And he's uh, just that. He's a guru, you know, kind of Indian, I believe, um, uh, you know, philosopher, etc. And they were going back and forth. And Joe said something about, you know, yeah, but, but the big farmer, you know, they're they're the real evil ones. I forget how he put it, and he said, "No, they're suffering too." And I'd never thought about it that way until this is probably six months ago. And I'm like, "Of course, like we're expecting, for example, these prime these presidents or prime ministers to fight for the health and well being and education of this country." But if that person is a raging narcissist or has got their own mental health crises, that compassion isn't there. If someone can sleep at night owning a tobacco company, knowing that tens of thousands of Americans, for example, are dying from their product, that's not a healthy mind. So I agree with you completely. And it's just a kind of aha moment I had somewhat recently that we always focus on the fentanyl crisis. Well, it extends, you know, there's no socioeconomic bracket that you belong to you can be you know you have to be mentally unwell to know that for example your product oxycontin is killing people all over the country and you're just worried about the money you're making yes and that tells me yes they have a mental health problem they do and whether it is born of capitalism or just this 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 hustle mentality that we have pushed forward i don't know i don't know well going back to to charles cullen then 
kind of walk me through from the the legal side how you know how were they first alerted and then you know what was that like uh, that journey like and when were you brought in to to start working with the detectives my understanding is he was fired um they were already doing a a pretty intense investigation behind the scenes. They already had, I I believe they had already even exhumed a body at that point. So when I was brought in, they, they had a lot. What they did not have was a smoking gun. And um, I was brought in because I was so close with Charlie. I was brought in because I had already talked to Charlie and they really didn't know how to get close enough to him because it would be really challenging for them to prove medical homicide. They had the evidence. There really wasn't at that point enough to put him behind bars. and. A confession would be it. So I know that that's really why they brought me in so that they had an opportunity, more of an opportunity to possibly just get him to confess. And so I was brought in kind of on the tail end of everything. Um, And when I got brought in, I really was at that point already pushing myself mentally, physically, emotionally, and my level of stress was so high already that I really didn't know whether I was going to survive the investigation. I was truly putting myself at risk and doing those things working with them, knowing that I was putting myself at such risk and and perhaps even having Charlie find out that I was working with the detectives, I didn't know whether he was just killing people at the hospital. What if he was killing people outside of the hospital as well? And that did go through my mind. And being a single mom and living there with my two young children, I was happy that I lived so far away from the hospital and yet I, he still knew where I lived. When, when we really delved into the possibility of me wearing a wire, we were at that crossroads where he had already gotten another job. And we felt like the detectives really made it very clear that this could be a now or never thing. So before we get to the wire, as you said, this was a nurse that you trusted. This is someone who became a good friend. What was that moment like for you when the reality of what was actually going on was presented in you know to you in a way that you were completely unaware of before, but now is irrefutable because of this investigation that had been going on? When they showed me the evidence, uh, it was a complete paradigm shift. And I've, I've heard about this from other people when they dissociate, when they're in the middle of trauma, whether it's because they are in an accident or if it's just something so severe that happens where it's like they leave their body. And 
it felt like that. It felt like I could not grasp onto what was real. Like my, I felt this intense paradigm shift to the point of, I don't really remember driving home. So it was, it was utter terror and fear and um, this intensity of trying to understand how I got into this, how I ended up being so close with, I, I didn't know if he was a serial killer at that time. We were just looking at one patient. But when I saw the list of things that he was taking out of the Pixis, I, I knew, I knew it wasn't just one person. I knew. So I was grieving also grieving this, amazing person that I thought that I knew and he never existed. Now I want to get to your journey out of that but just before we do you had the previous hospital you had your hospital what was the final known death toll of what became a serial murderer? The known death toll um, of just my hospital? I don't know I, I believe it was 40 patients uh, at my hospital and uh, total from Charles Graber's work that he did on the book, it is anywhere between 400 and 1,000 patients he murdered. Before we get to your emotional journey, just one kind of, um, I guess, educational point. You have what could possibly be 1,000 patients murdered by a nurse. What did you observe from the nursing profession after that happened? Was there a lessons learned we need to change or was there a, a sweeping under the rug? I mean, I've seen both in the fire service, depending on the department, of course. I don't believe it was necessary necessarily that they swept it under the rug. They just wanted us to forget. And they did now, um, they, they changed a couple of laws those particular laws, like Cullen's law, it 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 really is not a great law, and it it now targets people, and especially young nurses and unseasoned nurses who are making can make mistakes and be fired from somewhere, and that's not what Cullen's law was meant to do. It was meant to prevent having another Charles Cullen, and it's not doing that. It's harming nurses who are just making mistakes, not not going out of their way to murder people. So that did happen. Um, the design of the Pixis also changed, and it became much more safe, and people are watching it. Uh, but again, it's 20 years later, I, I, we become complacent and we just numb out. Uh, I don't, I don't believe that anything really changed. And I think that as you can tell from the UK, we still have this going on. It's uh, it, the people that have not been caught. Are there are people out there I know that are doing this? Yeah, we had one when I was younger, Dr. Harold Shipman, who was a physician in the UK. And I don't know, I think it was kind of maybe presented as 
part euthanasia, but I I don't think his particular case was when you when you dive in. But yeah, I mean there were I forget it. I think it was in the hundreds as well of patients because you know you've got a physician, a nurse, and and whether either they're very elderly or like you said an ICU where maybe outcomes aren't as high expected outcomes. You know, it's it's we need these safeguards to make sure it doesn't happen. And ninety nine point nine percent of us are going to be hopefully very good at our job. But how do we find that point one percent? There is a case right now. I saw it. Was it on Netflix, Hulu? I don't remember. Uh, it was a clinic. It was an infertility clinic, and a nurse was stealing all of the pain medicine. And these patients, because they had been through so much, um, and because, and especially women, women are really shamed for expressing pain. Um, they were given saline rather than pain medicine during egg retrievals. Oh my God. And, yeah. And so the nurse, uh, and I think that there were over 200 patients that were, essentially given absolutely no anesthetic at all for a very, very painful procedure. Egg retrieval is one of the most painful procedures that you can go, go through as a woman. And they just didn't want to complain because they had worked so hard to get to that point that uh, they were being shamed for saying that their pain level was a 10. So yeah, it was it's disturbing and to think that yes, another nurse. Well, another one again, which I thought the one that you were going to be talking about, there was a I think it was an infertility clinic um and the physician who owned the clinic was putting his own semen into all these sperm banks yeah. and there's like a whole town full of people that are yes. all related to each other. Yes. What yeah disturbing yes. and again what what is the basis for all of this it's always mental health it's always lack of mental health absolutely well i, I skipped over the the one part that i want to hit before we go to your healing journey as you mentioned you asked to wear a wire which you're trying to get the smoking gun the confession walk me through that because you've got this person that you you loved and trusted and admired now you've had this horrendous kind of realization of what's going on now you're trying to pretend to be the same friend that you were before but you're actually trying to capture evidence to put this person away so they don't kill anyone else i was really afraid that i wouldn't be able to do that and i am not one that can pretend i <laughs> my facial expressions that my energy is so big that I can't fake liking someone, enjoying someone, loving someone. I don't have it in me. And so I needed to find a way to go to a place within myself that could still connect with him. And I allowed myself to see him as that nurse. I, I, I blocked out that he was a murderer. I didn't know the murderer. I only knew my friend. And I only knew that man who I saw that very first night that I met him, 
who was sweet and kind and who saved my life. And I could go to that place within myself. And when I did wear the wire, I was very, very scared at first that he would notice that there was there was a contraption on my back that was taped to me and we had never hugged or been physical in any way before. And that day he hugged me and I thought for sure he was going to feel that box at the small of my back and he didn't. But I did get a type of confession out of him. He didn't say I did it. He just did not deny it when we were talking about it. And he said he wanted to go down fighting. So he was arrested. I was okay. This is over. And then we find out that the wire malfunctioned. So we had to go back in and it was doing it all over again. And I was determined. I was so determined to get to the murderer. It was really the first time that I realized I didn't want to talk to my friend. I wanted to talk to the murderer. I wanted to, I wanted to allow him to carry on this role, this mask that he was a hero. And that was what put him over the edge is that he needed to be my hero. And that was why he confessed. Now, when people psychoanalyze his behavior, what do they hypothesize was the reason that he was doing this? You know, obviously, it's to fill a void. We, you know, there's a clear mental health issue. But what was his perception of himself justifying this act? Um, he himself tried to make people believe he was a mercy killer, that he just wanted to help people. And that just wasn't true. And you can see even in his confession, uh, when if, if you've watched Capturing the Killer Nurse, you can see part of his confession, and he's very performative. And that is not who he is. He is very um egocentric he can be very smug and that was all performance he's never truly as far as i know he has never truly talked to anyone who is a psychiatric professional and he has no interest in doing that. He doesn't want to be studied. He doesn't want to have someone understand him or put him in the category of the other serial killers. So all we can do is surmise. I believe it was an obsessive compulsive disorder that had gone wrong. I believe he just had a, he was compelled to kill. He was compelled to continue that, that adrenaline rush and that, that feeling that he had power over someone. Um, and he just obsessed about it. That's my opinion. It's not a professional opinion. I'm only guessing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you hear that a lot from, you know, I think even the serial killers that it's that, like you said, that power, I mean, that, that domination, that fear and some of the more violent ones. But again, the, 
the concept that you and you alone decide if that patient lives or dies. There's got to be a kind of, you know, psychotic God complex to that, that maybe he, for whatever elements of his childhood felt powerless when he was young, it manifested in this distorted way to where he became the power. The person to talk to about this would be Charles Graber, who wrote The Good Nurse, because he spent the most time with him. He actually spent more time with him than I did. And even though we spent time together working, we didn't spend all of that time together one-on-one chatting. Charles Graber really, and and Charlie Graber, where, you know, we talk every week, he he has an insight into Charles Cullen like no one else. And he is, and I love the way that he describes him because he can put it into focus in ways that I cannot because he is removed from it. And he just, he has, he definitely, he definitely has that inside knowing of who Charles Cullen is. And he's probably the only person that does. Well, one of my closing questions is normally suggesting guests for the show. So uh, I think Charles would be a great person for me to try and get on here. He is so much fun to talk to. Really, really interesting guy. Beautiful. Well, if you're able to help, I'd love to make that happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you talked about childhood trauma, then you become a trauma nurse. So you have all that trauma you're exposed to in your profession yourself. Then you find out that one of your closest friends is a serial killer. Then you have to wear a wire twice because the first time it didn't go through. I would argue that there's quite a lot of trauma there by the time you get to the back end of this case, aside from the fact that you also have the cardiac issues. Physiologically or physically and and psychologically, what has been that journey of healing for you, the highs and the lows? Well, that certainly was my dark night of the soul. And uh, dealing with something that truly dark, what I believed was dark, I wanted to understand why I had aligned energetically with a serial killer. I was so close to him and protected him. And what was it within me that I wanted to protect a serial killer? Obviously, I did not know he was a serial killer at that time. But there had to have been a place within me that understood his darkness. There had to have been. Why were we able to bond so deeply? And that took me on I, a, a quest of, I didn't want to be in nursing anymore. I became a hypnotherapist. And during one particular, um, it was it was a timeline regression. During that timeline regression, I was regressed back to a traumatic event in my childhood. And it really brought me to the understanding of where I was in my growth and why I chose that piece of it for my growth. And again, these are my, this was my journey. Um, I believe, and I, I know that this can be very challenging for people. 
I believe I chose this situation for myself for this type of growth, for this type of experience. And I don't, I don't want anyone to believe that I think that when they go through trauma, that somehow they bring that on themselves. I, I, I don't want anyone to believe that I would think that. I do for myself and my own journey believe that I, I wanted to have this type of experience. And what I found through my experiences and starting to feel energy and experience different energies of flowers and inanimate objects and, um, and being able to talk to my guides and using tarot decks. Those are things that I would never have talked about in the past because I really felt like people would not take me seriously as a scientific person. And now with the way that quantum physics is, it's showing that oracles do have that type of energy and you can actually measure it now. So being able to experience those things and feel those things, it is much more mainstream than it was before. So now I understand that yes, Charlie and I had similar energy and that energy I just used for light and he avoided the light. We could have gone in the same direction. We, he could have been on the light side. Certainly, they. Uh, I believe his mother wanted him to be a priest at one time. So I know that he delved into his his own ideas of of what spiritual life is. So that was my that was my journey afterwards. Am I healed? I don't know if there is such a thing. I don't believe that anyone is broken. I believe that we're just on a journey. I believe that we're in this beautiful video game. And I leveled up uh, by facing a monster. And that monster wasn't Charles Cullen. That monster was myself. It's such a powerful insight. And I would have not had much to come back with as far as the hypnotherapy if we'd had this conversation when we originally did. I have been connected through a mutual friend to a hypnotherapist called Courtney Starkey. I don't know if you've ever come across her before, but she has put me through two sessions so far. We're supposed to do another one this Sunday. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. And it's it's been amazing. And it wasn't specifically for a trauma. It was, and I think that's the beautiful thing about it. It, it, it kind of goes where it goes, but opening your mind as wide as possible to the the possibility of multiple lives parallel universes you know previous lives um she talks about genius being the the you know the the, the spirit guides you know the the original term of genius is helper i think she said so you know that's another entire realm that is new to my mental health conversations is well you have hypnotherapy What's fascinating to me is here you are now in this field, which circles all the way back to your desire to be in the metaphysical when you were young. Exactly. Exactly. My grandma. And to know that I came full circle is amazing that I get to do this now. 
that I get to do exactly what I wanted to do when I was younger. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's inspiring. And again, like you said, the you know the dark night of the soul. This is a, an undulation. There is no healed. There is no broken. I I couldn't agree more. There's this journey, but with each trauma that you overcome, you grow from, in my opinion. And that's what resilience is. That's what is it's a superpower. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's a superpower. It is like if you if you play video games, that's what you do. You get better and better at it, and and then a new challenge comes at you. Now you have all of these things in your toolbox that you've been working with. And it's, you know, that doesn't mean that I don't get knocked down. That doesn't mean that I, however, if you think about a video game, that's exactly what happens. You get your ass kicked and then you come back and you're like, oh, I remember this now. I remember this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so you, you've got on this healing journey, you found these tools, which again, ironically, circle round to early life, so that all the bad things of early life, but also there was that, I guess, childhood knowing the whole time that that was part of the healing journey. Um, but then more recently, a book is written, and then again, they, they, they make the, the television film of your story. What was that experience like for you? What were the, the pros and cons of having this, you know, kind of dragged up again and reliving it? Um, it was, it was a long road getting the movie to the screen. And when I first saw it, when I saw Jessica playing me, it was the very first time I truly forgave myself because I could forgive her. I saw the character of Amy play out. I saw the gentleness of Amy play out. And I was able to embrace forgiveness. I was able to embrace who I was 20 years ago. And I was like, I was kind of a badass. So it was very healing. It was healing. The most challenging part was Eddie Redmayne truly embodying who Charlie was and then being being around him watching the movie and being able to hold on to those moments those friendship moments and having Charlie back with me for a little bit it was it was really healing healing it was really a beautiful experience it was beautiful well, they bit, both did such a great job. And Eddie, who played Stephen Hawking as well, was phenomenal in that. Um, it was the perfect balance between um, endearing the character and the fear, especially when he's sitting with, with your children yes. in that one scene. And, and it was just phenomenal because it wasn't like, you know, Freddy Krueger. Like, well, of course I hate him. He comes in my dreams and slices me open with his hands. Very, very two-dimensional. But they... The ability of this this person was actually more dangerous than than Freddy Krueger and a lot of notorious killers, but still had that that element where you believed that you could you know become friends with that person and trust them as a nurse. So I thought they did a great job telling that story. Yeah, Tobias Lindholm, amazing director, the screenplay writer Christy Wilson Cairns. We. We've known each other now for what ten years. We were, we've been working on it. So she and I, she she knew me. I think sometimes so much better than myself. And 
I, I loved seeing myself through her eyes and allowing myself to love myself and love who I was. Amazing. Well, just one more area. I had um, Josh Brolin on the show a long time. We actually became friends because he's an amazing human being. But he did a film called Only the Brave, which told the story of the Prescott 19, the 19 firefighters that were killed in Arizona. And he played the um, the supervisor, so one of the guys that was killed um, in the show. And the real-life Eric Marsh, his widow, um, Amanda, spent a lot of time with Eric to really you know, help him learn who I'm sorry, spent a lot of time with Josh, excuse me, to help him learn who Eric really was and make sure that he portrayed him the way that, that, you know, was justified. With Jessica, did you spend a lot of time working on your character so she was able to portray you that way? Uh, No, I didn't want her to. I wanted her to play the character. I didn't want her to play me. And, um, and I think Tobias and I had that conversation as well, that the person she would meet was 20 years out from that. The person she read in The Good Nurse and the person that she became in the movie was the me from 20 years ago. And I am so grateful that we spent more time afterwards so that she she could see that arc and we could experience things together after we spent we certainly talked on zoom we said you know we were on set together but i am so glad that we didn't spend that much time together because it wasn't me she was playing it was the old me love it such an interesting perspective well, I want to get to some closing questions and be mindful of your time, but one more area. People listening to this, I'm sure, hopefully are horrified, you know, but also, again, you know, inspired by, by the growth and some of the other things that we've discussed. What is your message to the medical world? What can we learn from your story, this story? Um, and if it isn't being done yet, we can push for change towards you know, a, a, an environment that maybe will make this a little less easy for the next potential serial killer out there? We're not going to change the corporation. We're not. It's it's too political. It's too big. The only place that we can make a difference is within our own mental health. And that's it. And if you see someone struggling, if you see that they are focusing on burnout and they're working too much, they're working night shift, you notice that they are not experiencing their emotions in a way that is healthy. It doesn't mean that you have to say something to them. What you can do is ask simply, which is something no one did for me. Are you okay? Are you okay? And how can I help? So that's what we can do. There's so many resources out there now. I didn't have those 20 years ago. And people are, there's huge conversations now with healthcare workers about our mental health and our mental wellness. Use those resources. And if you need a mental health day, take it. 
beautiful. I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, you know, the as you said, the resources are there, the people struggling are there, and we are the conduit between the two of them. Unless we create an environment that encourages people to ask for help, unless we're vulnerable in telling our own story, which opens the door for other people to come out, we're yes. never going to connect the two. Yes. And thank you for doing that. Thank you for being a voice for that. And thank you for talking about my childhood and bringing those things up. That was really, really cool. Thank you. Beautiful. Well, thank I mean, you have an amazing story. So thank you for coming on and, and telling it. I want to throw a few closing questions at you before we let you go. If that's okay. Go for it. All right. Very first one. Is there a book or are there books that you'd love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. I would, I would say Byron Katie. Uh, she, she is my, one of my gurus. Um, so loving what is, it offers uh, a very easy way to meditate through your thought process and anything by Jack Cornfield, anything by Jack Cornfield. Um, he's, he is the, the easiest way to learn how to meditate. Brilliant. What about a movie and or a documentary that you love? Hmm. Gaia. I would say why I, you know, the, the different series on Gaia that I have been watching recently, I would say just just go on Gaia and open something up because it will open up your mind. So Gaia.com is a channel. I don't know if you've ever been on Gaia.com. I have. I love, um, I used to love Rodney Yee and his yoga series. So that's kind of what took me yes. there. Yes. So I really feel like they have always been in the forefront of moving us forward. So really anything on Gaia, um, Samadhi, uh, there is, a, I think it's a three-part series on samadhi, and that opens up your mind and allows you to not take yourself so seriously. Perfect. Well, thank you for that. All right. Well, the next question, and we talked about Charles Graber. Is there anyone else that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Uh, I would say there's there's some wonderful nurses that are out there that are making strides. Um, um, don't clock out. They have a bunch of nurses on there. Uh, they started um, they started their journey because one of their coworkers left and I believe uh, killed themselves. Um, and so they started this journey called Don't Clock Out. And there's another one that is debriefing the front lines. And she is working with healthcare workers and nurses who have turned to substances and it helps them on a path to not just sobriety, but support even if you're not ready for sobriety. Beautiful. I just actually have a friend who um, has a family member that 
is in the medical profession and is, has been um, struggling with addiction, was found out. And, and from what I understand so far, that particular employer has taken a very open-minded, progressive view and trying to get them you know, back on track rather than destroying yeah. their career because of one mistake. Now, a fun person that I suggest you have on because she is so cool. Her job is amazing. She is a cytopathologist. She, um, she, her name is Nicole and Jemmy and she does the gross room and she has like 2 million followers, I think, uh, because people love the gross stuff that she has, but she does autopsies and talks about them and puts these really, really cool. Um, uh, it, it's, it's like you, you actually get to see what people look like when they fall off a roof or when they, you know, it's really cool stuff that she has found a way to be able to put online and the way that she talks about it because she has such passion and she, it's fun to talk about. So she is awesome. Brilliant. I'm going to have to look her up because uh, I actually pathology is the world that I've, I've wanted to get. Actually, Dr. G, who's had the TV show for a long time, she was my medical examiner when I was a firefighter in Orlando. But I think she <laughs> she cut all ties after that career, I think. And she was part of the Casey Anthony case, too. So the poor woman was dragged uh, into that nightmare. But um, but that's another world, you know, not only the acute uh, cases like the traumas, but also talk to me about the obesity epidemic. You know, as a pathologist, yeah. you know, what are you seeing yeah. at the very, very end? You know, and then the mental health. I mean, everyone that comes to you is dead. That's got to take a toll as well. Yeah. Well, yes, I, I, she would be the first person I would say, Nicole Ann Jemmy. She is, and she's so cool in interviews. She's so fun to talk to. Brilliant. Well, I appreciate that. I will reach out to her as well. Please do. All right. Well, speaking of um, offloading vicarious trauma, the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress these days? I meditate. I travel. I scuba dive. And I spend time with my two and a half year old granddaughter who puts me in my place every single day and reminds me that life is not fair because she is, she is an absolute power house and she will cheat at any game. And if she doesn't like a book, she just throws it at my head. And, you know, she does everything that all of us really want to do. She's just like pure emotion. And I love that about her. I just love it. She could be the next president with uh, no, no control over her temper in the mind of a two-year-old. The last two have been <laughs> the same way. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, for people listening, um, where can they find you? Like you said, you're doing hypnotherapy now. Where are the best places online and social media to reach out to you and maybe even try and book a, a consult with you? Amy the Good Nurse. So it's, it is amythegoodnurse.com and on Instagram, it's Amy the Good Nurse. Brilliant. Well, Amy, I want to say thank you so much. Like I said, I was, I was, blown away by the show which was kind of my um, gateway drug into to your life but as someone who worked in pre-hospital for a long time 
you know, there's so much to it. Obviously, the mental health side, there's the medical professional side, um, and it's been a phenomenal, phenomenal conversation. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thank you.